is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. On this episode, we discover the story of how one racer joined the JEC and proved that Jaguar racing on a budget is the best way into motorsport. Plus, Richard West talks about the developments in medical safety within racing. JECpodcast.com Hiya, I hope you're well and enjoying a lovely warm start to autumn across the UK. Wayne Scott here with you on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast for our 24th episode. You're very welcome along. And we start this week's podcast by chatting to another of our young ambassadors for the Haemophilia Society to find out where your money raised from buying raffle tickets to win our amazing 5-litre XK raffle car goes in order to help sufferers of this rare condition. Get your raffle tickets for just £2 now at www.jec.org.uk forward slash raffle. And this week, we talk to Jay Gardner to learn more about his story. Hiya, Jay. Hi, thank you so much for having me this week. I really appreciate it. Pleasure, Jay. Tell us all about Jay Gardner. Okay, so I live up in Edinburgh, Scotland. I study acting and I have severe haemophilia A. Tell us more about what that means for you, Jay. So having haemophilia, unfortunately, it has left me developing arthritis in some parts of my body due to having target bleeds. Haemophilia is where the blood cannot produce a certain protein to allow your blood to clot in the body. So what that means is that I can spontaneously bleed anywhere in my body, whether it be a muscle, a joint, or say my stomach, for example. I've bled into there in the past. How were you diagnosed and and how did that affect you growing up? So I was diagnosed, I think, maybe three days after birth. I was born just like any regular child. And over the course of those three days, both my arms, my legs, underneath my eyes, all started to swell up and started to turn black and blue. I had never really been formally diagnosed with haemophilia whilst I was like in the womb. So a doctor decided to run the test and it came back that I had 0.01% of my factor eight. And that's pretty much the bog standard for a lot of haemophiliacs. Well, we've been talking a lot with the other guys that we've spoken to about the community around the haemophilia society and how that's helped. Tell us about how that's helped you in, in your life deal with this condition. Majorly, one of the great things about the Haemophilia Society is the fact that you can meet other people who have the same condition as you. And one of the great things about that is you get to share your experiences with Haemophilia. And being able to do that makes you realise that you're not alone. You're not the only one that has to put up with that mental frustration when you're having a bleed into a joint and you can't go out to school or you can't go out and play with your friends as a child. It's been really uplifting and inspiring to hear other people's stories of having haemophilia and what they're able to achieve. We can look at like Jack Bridge, who's a Paralympic swimmer, or Clive Smith, who does Ironman. Some people that do also have uh, severe haemophilia and can still live a full life just like everyone else can now. Explain a moment where that lack of awareness amongst the general public has, has affected your life. So... 
one time when I was at college, I think this is actually quite a funny story personally, but I can understand how other people might be offended by it. I was at college and I had to take my medication because I felt a bleed was coming on. So I was sat in like a sort of communal area, which is the only space I had to do it. And I was making up my medication. I then had my needle out because I had to inject it intravenously. That means into the vein. And one of my lecturers came out of this room and he was like, Chris, what are you doing? Are you shooting heroin? And like, I was taken aback slightly. I was like, I, of course, that's what I'm doing. I'm shooting up here, letting everyone watch me. Like, come on, dude, if I was going to do that, which I never would, (laughs) I wouldn't just be doing it out in the open, you know? Um, So that was like the first time I sort of realized I was like, do you know what? Not everyone sees this every day. Someone just like whapping out a needle and injecting themselves. And I took it in good spirit, but I know there are some other people that would be incredibly offended by that, you know, especially like if a mother were to hear that her child had been spoken to like that from like a teacher or something that would, that would just blow up, you know? Well, it's a fantastic example of why the work of the charity, of course, is so important and why it's important for people to put their hands in the pockets and buy these raffle tickets to win this Jaguar XK. It's a five-litre model in Foxfire Red. It's a beauty. And for you, Jay, just in a few words, explain why people should, you know, dig deep and buy as many tickets as they can. Every donation really helps the Haemophilia Society. They do so much in raising awareness for women who have bleeding disorders, for people that have Haemophilia B, platelet disorders as well, Von Willebrand's disease. The Haemophilia Society also create um, booklets which help raise awareness about sexual health because that's something we never really talk about whilst having haemophilia. Or what's it like growing up with haemophilia and it's just... Every like donation helps the charity so much and it helps everyone who uses the charity to live a more fuller life. As you mentioned at the uh, top of the interview there, you are the next big budding actor. So just a, a kind of promise I want you to make to us, Jay. Will you remember us when you're famous? Absolutely. Jay Gardner, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks to Jay. You can actually learn more about Jay by finding his YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for Jay Gardner and you'll easily find his channel and see more about him there. With just 35,000 miles on the clock and all the features of the signature edition, you won't want to miss the opportunity of winning this superb XK. Get your raffle tickets now, just £2 a time at jec.org.uk forward slash raffle. Memories of motorsport. Richard remembers on the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Once again this week on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, Richard West remembers some of his fondest stories from a lifetime in motorsport. And this week we talk about the interesting subject actually of safety within motorsport. And Richard, safety has become more and more important to racing as the years have gone on, hasn't it? It has indeed, Wayne. And in fact, when you and I spoke about maybe doing this subject last week, I spent quite a bit of time going back over my diaries because I've been fortunate in my career to have worked with two of the greatest, uh, in my opinion, in sport. One which is a name familiar to everybody, Professor Sid Watkins, or just simply Sid, or the prof as he was known in the paddock. 
and Dr. Paul Trafford, who uh, looked after and still looks after a great many of the drivers in the current day BTCC and, and World Rallying. So, yeah, interesting characters. I think we should start with Sid, really, who I'm sure, as I say, many people have heard of. Sid was a very interesting character. He um, was a trained neurosurgeon. Uh, he was a very modest man, and he didn't suffer fools badly. He first met Bernie Eccleston, I think it was, in the late 70s. Um, you know, obviously, at that time, Bernie was really starting to gather strength and take over Formula One. And Formula One and all other forms of motorsport, as you know, in the early years, was notoriously dangerous. And Formula One had reached a point where, quite clearly, it needed a permanent medical officer. And Sid had already, uh, Sid Watkins had already had a medical team assembled and done some basic work at Watkins Glen when he lived and worked in America. And Bernie approached him, and, uh, you know, rumor has it that Bernie offered him something like 35 grand in dollars for the year of which Sid had to pay all of his own expenses. But Sid accepted that. I think his first race he attended was actually the 1978 Swedish Grand Prix. Um, outside of his Grand Prix weekends, he, he remained in his position as a neurosurgeon in London. But his first day as the safety and medical delegate was a brand satch where he went to introduce himself to the drivers. In those days, there were so many test sessions, he didn't attend test sessions. But... Where he really came to fame was at the Italian Grand Prix in 1978. Ronnie Peterson had crashed very heavily on the first day. Um, and, you know, he was quite seriously injured. Fellow drivers, Clay Regazzoni, Patrick Depay, and James Hunt pulled him from the wreckage of his Lotus. But at that time, um, the Italian police had formed a human wall from pe people entering the area. And Sid was initially stopped from assisting the treatment of Ronnie um, for some 18 minutes before the ambulance arrived to take Peterson off to hospital. And, of course, it, it really rankled with Sid that he, he couldn't get that, that access as he needed. And he went straight to Bernie after the incident and said, listen, you know, we've got to have better stuff. And he demanded that there was, you know, much, much better safety equipment. He was responsible for instigating the Medivac helicopter uh, all the Grand Prix in those days. So if somebody was seriously injured, they could be attended to very, very quickly uh, and move forward. And, in fact, he wasn't actually very... Much, he wasn't welcomed by many of the race organisers and famously um, when he went to the Hockenheim Grand Prix of that year um, they actually denied him access to the race control and Bernie stood, you know, a man of his word Bernie stood in front of the drivers on the grid and he threatened to take all the drivers out of the cars and cancel the start of the race unless Sid was allowed access to the race control in order to see how things would be dealt with so he was a remarkable man in those, those early years and of course in the early 80s he also had to battle with the FISA, or FISA as we called it, under the control of Jean-Marie Belest, which if you know anything about motor racing, Jean-Marie Belest wasn't always the easiest man to deal with. We take for granted now, Richard, that race circuits come with high-tech medical centres and all of the equipment they need to deal with an incident in the quickest way possible when it happens. In those days, those medical centres simply didn't exist, did they? So how have you seen the actual infrastructure at race circuits themselves change over that time? Oh, it's changed massively. If you go back to that era when Rennie suddenly lost his life 18 hours after that Monza crash, you know, the medical centres frequently were just a tent with a stretcher in them. Um, and it was thanks to Bernie and Sid's remarkable friendship that Bernie invested and made the circuits invest more heavily. And another name some of our listeners may have heard of is Dr. Paul Trafford, who is the the BTCC medical officer, but also has been very 
active in world rallying over the years. He was the um, doctor, lives in Scotland, but he was the doctor who oversaw the spinal operation on, um, I think it was the rally accident that befell the Mitsubishi team back in the Tour de France when the co-driver, you know, broke his spine. And without these guys' input, particularly Stephen Trafford, who's known Dr. Paul Trafford, we wouldn't have the medical centres we've got today. And it, it, it hasn't come about easily. I mean, I remember when I was running the BTCC from 2001 to 2004, I did a visit to the Mondello circuit in Ireland, and uh, the um, late Will Hoy accompanied me there. And again, the gentleman is no longer with us, Martin Brain, who owned Lola and a number of other successful motorsport businesses. Martin was heavily involved in the, in the, in the Mondello Park circuit. And the medical centre there was very, very poor. And in fact, we really stuck to our guns. And again, Paul Trafford got involved in this. And funnily <laughs> enough, the only bloke that actually used the medical centre that weekend was me because I was staying with relatives. And when I opened the fridge when I got home late that night, there was a pork chop on the plate with some, you know, mashed potato. And I thought that was very kind of, you know, them to leave it for me. As I laid in the medical centre with food poisoning the next day, I... I failed to read the note on the plate which said dog's dinner do not consume uh, so I had first hand experience of being in the Mondello Park Medical Centre but this drive by people like Professor Watkins, Bernie Eccleston and the teams latterly of course because in 82 there was a very tragic accident where we lost a young driver called Riccardo Paletti um, who you know stalled on the grid and there was an enormous impact on the car Sid was there within seconds but unfortunately the fuel tank ruptured and Paletti's car caught flames. Sid received some injuries whilst tending to Ricardo, who sadly was beyond help. And then, of course, really in the early 80s, as Formula One, as sports cars, as everything got faster and faster and faster, those influences of those key individuals, and Bernie and Sid and Traff must take immense credit, along with the people that work in the teams behind them, for ensuring that those medical centres now are literally fully staffed hospitals at the circuits virtually. The medivacs are there. The ambulances are there and the trained personnel are there. So God forbid, in the incident, for example, that took Ayrton and Roland's life those weekends, Sid was the first one to insist that he actually went in the in the chase car. So the doctor's car that you see at the back of the grid now, when you see the start of a Formula One race, that car that chases the cars round on the first lap, Sid used to actually be in that car with all of his medical equipment. And there are many, many drivers. The list is, you know, is, is very impressive. Where Sid has helped guys like Martin Donnelly, who had that terrible accident at Jerez, Eric Comas, at Spa, Gerhard Berger in that fiery accident at Imola, Barrichello, the Imola weekend, Carl Bendlinger at Monaco, and Mika Hakkinen, who had to have major surgery performed on him at the side of the track in Adelaide when his windpipe and throat was blocked and Sid actually performed surgery on him when he's in the car. Quite remarkable stuff. The story of increasing safety in motorsport, I guess, kind of starts with Jackie Stewart and the um, real almost protests that he ran um, way back in the early part of his career. But what's interesting is, despite all of the development that we have seen in motorsport, of course, we are still always learning. The most recent fatality I witnessed, of course, Alan Simonson at Le Mans in 2012, where we lost him. And so it's it's still a very dangerous sport, and the sport is still learning every day on how it's made safer. Um, there's still a lot more to learn, isn't there? There is, and you rightfully mentioned Jackie, Sir Jackie Stewart, because, you know, I would be very remiss, and thank you for the prompt without mentioning Jackie, because what he did in those early days in Formula One, he was regularly, and drivers like Graham Hill and others were regularly seeing their friends and their colleagues killed, 
and I had the great privilege of interviewing Dan Gurney uh, several years ago when I hosted the McLaren 50th unofficial celebration dinner with over 350. Dan very kindly came on Skype from, you know, the Eagle's Nest in the States. And he also mentioned Sir Jackie Stewart and said, you know, Jackie made all of our lives safer. He was a great champion. He made sure that things like seatbelts and starting to get better structure integrity in the cars. And throughout his entire illustrious career, Jackie has always championed the safety cause. And behind the scenes, of course, some of these people like Sid, like Jackie, like Bernie, great friends, spent many, many hours. And in fact, after the, the Senna accident and the Ratzenberger accidents at Imola, there was an enormous push. Many of the teams put enormous resources, both financial and personnel, into all the things that continually make the sport safer. And in fact, last weekend's Grand Prix, a couple of massive shunts in that, you know, that would have been unsurvivable a decade ago. And much credit must go to everybody who's played a part over the years in making the sport so much safer. But you can never totally eliminate, you know, the risk of serious injury or, or sadly a death because what people do in racing is inherently dangerous. But thankfully, we've had some great names in the past and we continue to have great names and the FIA driving the safety agenda forward today. Well, a fascinating insight there, Richard. Coming up next on the JC podcast, Tom Robinson from Swallows Independent Jaguar answers some of your technical questions. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Well, while Tom is busy preparing his Jaguar for the next round of JC Racing at Donington, a brief return to answering your technical questions now. And Jamie Robertson has been in touch with the following message. Hi there. Yeah, I've got a um, 2013 Jaguar XF um, 2.2 diesel with 197 horsepower. Um, had a problem with it in um, uh, February where um, it kind of broke down, basically. I was driving along, and um, it's an automatic car, and I was pushing it quite hard. I was driving it quite you know, enthusiastically, um, and I'm pushing it uh, using the sports paddle uh, gearbox, uh, pushing it to about uh, 4,200, 4,300 revs uh, per minute. Now, as I was driving along, the, the little red light came on. It's a restricted performance light that came on. And this means that the performance is restricted. It feels like you're driving home in a limp um, mode. Um, now, I had to take this into the garage. Um, I had to do this a few different times to different garages. And eventually, I took it into a Jaguar specialist. And they advised that the EDR gas valve had been problematic. Now, the garage that I took it into wrecked the, um, the, 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 the whole kind of valve and everything. And it had to be replaced. And the cost uh, was going to be £60,000 from the Jag dealer in, um, in Glasgow. Um, so the, the question I want to ask the kind of techie guys is, and also this is acts as a bit of a warning to um, other uh, Jaguar owners or potential XF owners, that um, you know, does j- driving your Jag diesel um, hard um, over, say, 4,000 revs, does that potentially damage the engine? Uh, I don't know. I'm not familiar with, with diesels. I just kind of got a diesel last year. And I'm used to kind of driving cars quite hard. With the paddle uh, paddle shift, I was pushing it quite quite hard. And this apparently is not good for the engine, although I don't know why there's not a limiter on the on the engine. Uh, the exhaust galve recirculator, I understand, is not serviceable. It's not a serviceable part, which I, I don't really understand why why Jaguar make a product you can't service. And I never got an explanation from my my local garage when I got it repaired as to what what exactly happened. But um, anyway, 
So I've got the EGR, I've got the cooler replaced, uh, the car runs fine. Uh, I don't get quite as good economy now. Um, but just that acts as a potential warning to um, you know, XF uh, owners and potential uh, Jaguar uh, drivers that um, this can happen. Uh, it's a part that, that's on the car. It's a part of the um, engine management system. And my, my car uh, lit up with lights um, when I was um, you know, driving along, you know, about six months ago. And uh, I've never, you know, been kind of quite so sort of shocked with the car that, that, that so much can go wrong with it with a car. But I took it to, to the local garage, lived, lived home, over to the garage with lived home wood. And, um, yeah, just as, uh, just as maybe uh, as a warning to other uh, drivers, um, just to see what you think. And maybe I, I did stuff that I shouldn't have done in a, in a, in a six-year-old Jag. Um, the car's got about 70,000 miles on it, and uh, I, I learned my lesson to, to treat it with a bit of respect and don't rev it too hard. Anyway, I'll just leave that thought with you. Uh, thank you very much. This is Jamie Robertson from Glasgow, and have a, uh, enjoy driving your Jags, guys. <laughs> Bye-bye. Well, Tom, what do you think? So that's actually a, a really good question. It's something we have answered um, before on the on the podcast. So um, most people sort of probably wonder what the EGR valve actually does on these diesels. Now, um, first things first, the EGR is basically purely there for emissions. It's not actually needed for a diesel engine to run. It's for modern emission standards. So it's basically is what the EGR does. I won't go into too much detail on this because it is quite complex with chemical breakdowns, etc. But um, the easiest way to explain it is it basically recirculates some of your exhaust gases back into the combustion cycle of that diesel engine so the idea of it is is to neutralize some of the the pollutants that are coming out of the back of the car so that is the only reason that is there now the fact that you're driving the car more aggressively when it faulted now at the end of the day you should be able to drive that car like you've explained it's designed to do that as long as you're not over revving it which is a car's designed for you not to do so because it has got a limiter on there it should be absolutely fine it's probably the fact that when you're pushing the car to its limitations is when there is more likely there for there to be a fault or to find a weak um, spot on the car so the the actual EGR valve is a weak point on those and they are really common as what normally happens um, is you get soot build up on the EGR which sometimes either jams it or damages the solenoid which is why it's non-serviceable so they're a cast item there isn't anything you can actually replace and you can't buy the items separately this is something that not just Jaguar do pretty much all manufacturers do now and a lot of other components on these cars unfortunately are exactly the same it is just throw away now which is is a bit of a shame but that is just how things are done now hopefully that helps well thanks to tom robinson from swallows independent jaguar who will return next week here on the jc podcast with the latest installment of his motorsport preparation diary as he readies his xjr for donnington you're listening to the jaguar enthusiasts club podcast join the jaguar enthusiasts club now at jec.org.uk well, this week on the JEC podcast, we're talking to another of our JEC racers. This time, it's Mike Seaborn, and we're talking about how you can get into racing on a relatively small budget, because that is exactly how Mike has done it. Firstly, welcome to the podcast, Mike. Hi, Wayne. Good to talk to you. Uh, so, uh, let's go right back to the beginning first, before we get to JEC racing. Tell us about how your life in motorsport all began. Um, well, I was um karting from a from a young age uh like 
most of the lads I was racing with, I was, I was convinced that I was the next Hamilton. Um, sorely disappointed, as it turned out. But, um, yeah, so karting really brought me into the sport. You've gone from karting to running in the Jaguar Enthusiast Club uh, Race Championship. Tell us about the stages you've had to go to in between, you know, running around as a little lad on a cart and ending up on the grid full of Jaguars. Is this the first car that you've raced or how has the story played out? Uh, yeah, actually somewhat similar to um, to Halty from the sounds of it, that I, um, I, I stepped away from karting. I went away and bought myself a TVR Chimera um, and I was uh, using that as a track car. Um, blasting around in that, and I thought, "Crikey, this is this is too good not to <laughs> not to do on a regular basis." And um, and I knew, I knew I had to race. I've, I've always had the bug. Nothing else was ever quite um, quite exciting enough. It was always racing. Obviously, you're uh, now in a Jaguar XJ40, aren't you? So, um, firstly, why Jaguar at this particular point? Because there are so many other race series you could have gone into, but you've ended up, thankfully, with us at JC Racing. What attracted you to Jaguar in the first place? Well, I was I was just looking to get on the grid um, as cheaply as I could. Um, I was looking at typical hot hatch series, uh, tin top series, and um, I couldn't believe the amount of money that um, that was required to get into a, a Fiesta, Clio, Honda Civic, just with a roll cage and uh, and some, a few mods on it. I, I thought it was ridiculous, and so this XJ40 was for sale um, for. Um, I believe it was listed for £4,000, somewhere in the region of that. And so it was amongst these cheaper hot hatches. And I was thinking, that that looks so out of place. It's so balmy. I've got to go have a look at it. And um, I went to look at it. And it was, um, I did a bit of research. I found out it was Gail Hill's old car that had won the championship previously. Started reading into the JEC championship. I wouldn't have told you that, that Jaguars were raced <laughs> until I'd uh, done this research because I didn't. I wouldn't have believed it. Yeah. Um, but when I found out that the the character of the cars, um, how much, how noisy, how big, how brawny they are, and how good the racing was, I, I knew it was for me. And this is incredible. This is a point we should make that you picked up a ready to race car. There was not really too much work, I'm guessing, that you had to do to it. It was ready to race, virtually turnkey, for four thousand pounds. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? Yeah, well I was lucky enough actually in the end to land it for three thousand pounds. <laughs> wow. Amazing. And uh it was it was it was definitely opportunistic. I'm I am i am not um I'm not convinced it's entirely repeatable, but it's not a million miles away from where cars are being put on the grid for and i should say mine was three thousand pounds because it, it's 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 a very old race car it's um it's scruffy uh every panel's bent it's um it's got some real heritage on it if you, if you want to put it that way <laughs> some patina as they call it in classic yeah, circles exactly. yeah yeah exactly um but you can you can get yourself a really gorgeous clean car for not that much more at all and it will be built and ready to go and there's, there's lots of them about so presumably you had to do your ARDS test in order to enter the championship as well, or had you already got that in place? Um, no, I, I did my ARDS, um, I believe, not long before I, I bought the car, uh, as soon as I knew I, I didn't know where I was going to race yet, but I knew I was going to race. Um, so I booked mine at Castle Coombe, and um, to be honest, uh, it, was a, it was a fairly simple process for me because um, the fella who took my art test um was the same guy who coached me karting at castle coon growing up so we knew each other well and it was um not a formality there's still a test to pass but i, I was um i was lent a uh, a big slice of comfort i suppose 
Brilliant. Yeah, that's nice. You sort of have been seen as you've come through the ranks and I guess that helps as well when you're taking the arts test that uh, you've got someone familiar sat next to you. And uh, for anyone listening to this who is thinking about giving racing a go, I think we've just about sold them on the fact that Jaguar is a cheap car to buy ready to race. So let's talk about some of these things that you have to go through before you get on the grid. Describe an arts test and explain basically how that day went for you and, and what it requires. Okay, well, an, an ARDS test is, um, an ARDS test is, if for anyone who's done fast circuit driving, it will come very naturally. It's, um, as much as it's about safety, there's, there's a little bit of speed to factor in as well. Um, but you don't, you don't need to set the world alight. You just need to have good awareness of how the car's behaving. And um, so, so much so as to, to be able to be under control in in a competitive situation um but it's again for anyone who's ever driven a car around a circuit it will be a formality um because you're not expected to to be at and center your first time out um and then there's a there's a written element which um again is is just really straightforward it's it's just that having that common sense um which anyone should have it's i mean i managed it so i'm sure anyone else could um, it's really, it's a very simple process to be honest. If you've had any involvement in motorsport, um, if you've done any track days, it will come very naturally to you. So you've got your ARDS test. You've now bought your XJ40 for three thousand pounds. What was the next step? The next step was to find out where all these uh, nutters hang out who race Jaguars. Um, and it turned out the next event was at Fruxton, which was great for me. It's, it's fairly local. It's a circuit I know quite well. Um, so I, I rocked up. Um, absolutely terrified very nervous um i say i've done karting but actually being in the paddock surrounded by race cars and, and machinery and teams it, it was really i was totally out of my element and um and then the jags start rolling in the guys start wandering over um especially when they recognize gail's old car um everyone's excited and, and everyone came over to talk about the car and i straight away felt at home with the guys um almost a part of the family from day one and um, and then we start racing, and um, and the car, which I've had no frame of reference really as to what I picked up for four or three thousand pounds. My first weekend at Fruxton, the car qualified top of its class and then won its class both races, um, and just went like a bat out of hell. <laughs> I was I was amazed, and and the guys were so welcoming. Um, I I wasn't. It wasn't that I turned up and raced everyone. It was that I turned up, been inducted, had a social. And then, um, and then eventually we went out and, and raced around the track. It was it was just a great weekend. Brilliant. And is there an element on that first season, and especially that first race, where you sort of just give yourself a bit of a buffer zone to learn things as you go? You give yourself a little bit more on the table. You'd think so, but I've actually never managed to <laughs> quite repeat how quick I went on my first weekend at Preston. Um, I think um, having having the, the karting heritage behind me, I suppose I, I had a, an advantage. Um, in that sense, in, in that I've got maybe a bit of a racing brain. I'm, I'm comfortable being wheel to wheel, which I think may be the um, the most intimidating thing for someone who's who's quite fresh to it. Um, so I jumped in the car. Um, I qualified uh, well well above my station, I suppose. And and as, as soon as as soon as you do that, you, you put a weight of expectation on yourself, and you're not turning up anymore. You want to race. Um, made a terrible start as well, um, so I had to fight. 
a few cars on my way back up and and it only takes a couple of moments of um of being wheel to wheel um with these other guys to learn especially in the big cars where you you break in zones you sort of both compromise compared to a light car i guess and, and the cars don't turn in as sharp as either of you would probably want so you <laughs> You, you know that you're racing with people who've got similar strengths and weaknesses. And um, after a couple of occasions of going wheel-to-wheel, being left to space and leaving the space yourself, you soon learn that this, this is racing, it's proper racing. Um, the guys are all aware, um, are all uh, spatially aware, and, and they will race each other hard because they can, because the grid is um, proficient in, in going wheel-to-wheel with each other. And so it's very easy uh, if you know your lines, if you know how to um, how to race someone wheel to wheel, it's very easy just to slide onto this grid and have a great time racing everyone. And it's something that comes across quite strongly whenever I talk to anyone who's racing in a championship. That although there is this great camaraderie and this family feeling, when you're out on track, it is proper door handle to door handle racing and although there's some certain sort of professional respect if you like out on track for each other it is proper competition everyone wants to win and everyone's going to push themselves as hard as they dare absolutely it's a it's a championship which was one of the most appealing things for me a lot, a lot of budget club racing is um it's going to be series where you turn up on a weekend you give it give it your all and then that's it it's over Whereas when you've got to put a championship together, um, results really count. Being consistent really counts. And um, and it develops, um, I guess, some competitive rivalry as well, especially with a class system in place that you, you're you going into qualifying uh, and you are looking for particular cars. You're thinking, right, that fella there, if I want to win this class, him, I need to out-qualify. And, um, and it adds so much more to it. I, I'm... I'm so happy to have found myself in a championship rather than a series because it just adds so much more to the racing. And, um, and it, it is competitive. It is, there's my, my experience so far. I'm not the most experienced JEC racer, but, um, I couldn't have asked for any cleaner racing. Um, so far what I've had, I've, I've never had anyone put a move on me that I thought was, um, was exceptional. That wasn't, wasn't on. And, um, and I've, by the same token, I've, I've never gone to overtake someone, maybe a dive in the braking zone, and they've not seen me and given me the space. It's been um, as clean as you would want. Uh, and, but there is always that hard edge as well. No, no, one, no one's letting anyone pass. It's not going to work like that. It is hard edge racing, but it's, um, but it's very, very well executed. And what's interesting about you, Mike, is that you said to me just before we started recording this interview that actually... It wasn't in particular that you were into Jaguars and you've got no necessarily any affinity with the brand before racing. It was just the attraction of this championship and how good it is that brought you here, basically. And and that's a real great accolade for JC Racing, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, yeah, the only affinity I've really got with Jaguars is, is that I'd adore a supercharged XKR. But I think anyone of my generation would probably say the same. Um, other than that, it's it's always been TVRs to me. But when I started racing, and I, as I say, I saw this car for sale. I thought it looked so odd. I'd look up the series, and um, and it only took five ten minutes on YouTube for me to be absolutely hooked. Um, and then when I saw the car as well, my car probably is the quietest in the paddock. Uh, when I heard my car start up for the first time, I thought the gates of hell had been opened. It absolutely <laughs> roared. 
Um, of course, you know, you turn up and, and the rest of the cars turn up, especially the V12s. Oh, it's incredible. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a TVR fan because I like big engines, big noise, and sort of quite brutish muscle cars. And the Jaguar was absolutely perfect. Uh, they've, they've probably they've got just about enough uh, sophistication in the way they drive um, that they're not unwieldy. They're actually quite um, quite forgiving when you push them, which you wouldn't think for a five meter long saloon. But my car in particular is 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 really easy to get in and drive. But they they do have that real brutish element. They're full of torque. They'll spin the wheels up at any moment, and they go sideways everywhere. It's just the, you know, people have their own preferences. But for me, this is absolutely the best kind of racing. Brilliant. Well, Jaguar probably never had this in mind for the XJ40 when they rolled off the production line uh, in the 1980s. But as you say, surprisingly able on track despite its size. So what have you done to yours as you've now had? A few races with it and you've progressed through the seasons over the years you must have adapted the car and changed it to suit you as your styles developed for me it's been quite simple i i know my technical skills are limited so that's why i bought a, a well campaigned uh, race car and um and this car's been in uh, chris boone's hands at cough cats that uh, gales run it howard kirkham built it originally and i know over the course of many years it's, it's had guys put a lot of love into it so i i I haven't really tried anything massive. Um, there's no point trying to start a revolution when people who know a lot more than me have already built the car. But um, what I have done is a brake upgrade, which was sorely needed uh, because it just wasn't quite. It, it's you know it, as much as it's um, as much as it's been stripped out, it's still a, a massive five meter behemoth, so it doesn't stop well. Um, so that was the first thing I wanted to address, and. Um, other than that, really just sort of a bit of light recommissioning, just new bits here and there where um, some bits were showing their age, but it, it hasn't needed a whole lot. And um, and the engines are, are fantastic. I, I think my engine's probably on uh, probably on three or four seasons now um, since it was first thrown in the car and built, and it still produces as much power as you could want. I, I think that's probably the big positive of the of the Jag Championship, if you, if you want to run a highly strong four-cylinder race car, you may be looking at a rebuild every year or two. But the old AJ16s, and I think the V8s in the XKs as well, um, they just age so well. They'll, they'll, they'll just take it. They, they'll take it year after year after year, and they'll still give you 250, 300 horsepower. It, I mean, they're just brilliant units. So it, make, it does make for genuine low-cost racing because you don't have to worry about mechanicals so much amazing yeah that's a real great thing about these jags just the reliability and we've heard it from tom as he's taken us through his racing diary here on the podcast that actually relative to what he's been doing with that car and the pressure that it's under actually it seems to be really reliable and fairly easy to set up as well and that, as you say that just makes it a lot more affordable uh, in racing however it is quite a big commitment isn't it racing over the over the course of a season over the course of the year and pretty much it robs you of most of your weekends doesn't it you do have to focus on this well i will just sort of um rebut your point about tom i don't think anything tom says can be even remotely applied to the rest of the grid because they're not they're not building a race car at swallows i think they are not going to stop until they can actually pull the world off of its axis (laughs) (laughs) what they're doing with that car is unbelievable um (laughs) <laughs> but yeah sorry to, to, to the question um it is a big commitment yeah it is um i don't think i don't think motorsport is really going to work as a, a second or third hobby it's not something you can necessarily casually do 
because you do need to um you do need transport you need um you need as you say the time that you have to give up is is monumental if you're running your own car it's not just every weekend because you're going to bend something or you, there's going to be a part that's going to break and and it will be midweeks as well late evenings in the workshop in the garage um in the back of the truck as i as i work on mine is is it is a big commitment. Um, the way to really alleviate that is if you can have a team run the car for you, which a lot of guys do. And, um, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of old hands on the grid who, who are brilliant running cars. Um, Tom Lenfall is a good example. He puts out a customer car for Derek Pierce, the XK8. And, um, and it's, it's a, it's a spectacular looking race car. It's immaculate every time it gets on the grid. And it absolutely kicks ass as well, which is a shame because it's in my class. <laughs> it's monstrously powerful, and um, and as far as I understand it, Tom runs the car for Derek, and and it, that's um, that's a way to do it that, that just keeps keeps your life so much easier. If you can just turn up on the weekend, have the car transported there, and um, and you just drive it, that will make your life a lot easier. But then that that becomes a budgetary consideration. If if you've got the love for it, um, as I have. Um, you probably won't even want to do that because you want to you want to go over the car yourself anyway, and and that's what makes it cheap really if you can do your own work. But then again, commitment steps into it. And um, but if if you love motorsport, you'll never resent it for a second. I I haven't resented it at all. I've done long drives with a broken race car in the back of the truck, four hours, five hours back from Cadwell with a car that's smashed up, and I've, I've achieved absolutely nothing over the whole weekend. And I haven't resented a second of it because this is this is what life's all about. You know, you, you've got you've got to find your your element in life, and if it's motorsport, you, you'll love it. Even even the miserable weekends, you'll love it. And let's talk about race day then, Mike. How do you prepare for a typical race weekend? What's your sort of ritual, if you like, for preparing the car and then on the day of the race, preparing yourself? Yeah. So I um, the cars is uh, the car is. They're not a highly strong bit of kit. It's, it's this, this the simple things really on the way to a weekend. Um, make sure there's some decent tyres on the car. Make sure there's some brake pad left, um, ideally. Um, fluids and filters, simple things. Um, but they are they are a tough bit of kit, and uh, and they don't they don't take too much maintenance as long as as long as you're on top of the basics. They'll they'll go all day. Um, so that's as far as the car needs. And then you throw it in the back of the trailer or or the truck. Um, Fill the truck up with beer is my um, <laughs> primary concern normally. Um, also, a load of um, coke and water and things for the next morning when I wake up feeling terrible and I've then <laughs> got to drag myself off to a qualifying session. Um, get up to the circuit. I, you can look for accommodation outside of the circuit, hotels and the like. Um, but there's a lot of really cool because racing is all about boys' toys at the end of the day. So, so you can get yourself a cool transporter, a cool trailer that might have accommodation built into it, which is what I've got. I've got a truck with a, with a sort of bedroom in it, which is, you know, a great boys toy, um, another little bonus. Um, st- stop over at the circuit on the Friday night. Um, and in the morning before, before the car gets its first running on the circuit, it's, it's simple checks. It's, it's tire pressures and, um, just maybe damper settings. Um, again, that's probably a bit, a bit too sensitive for the likes of the Jags. I don't think I've never found a setup that will significantly change the way a 1500 kilo saloon's going to handle. But you know, it's, it's something that can be considered. Um, I've seen guys doing it in the paddock. I'm, I'm sure they're just doing it for show to try and put the scares on other people. But you know, each to their own. 
Um, yeah, tire pressures, again, make sure the engine's got some oil in it. Um, an old Jag straight six, you know it's running if it's kicking out oil. If, uh, if you stop losing it, then there's a problem. So uh, make sure you put some back in and um, and you're good to go. And a lot of, um, I mean, there is some mental preparation to be done uh, because it, it, it's it's intense, you know, it's an intense sort of sport. Um, I always like to know my way around the circuit. If, if I haven't driven the circuit before, I will um, I'll w- watch some onboard videos on YouTube just to have an idea how to approach it. And then um, if it's a new circuit, ease into it, build up for a few laps. But in all honesty, it doesn't take that long. Sort of red mist comes down and, and you just start throwing the car at apexes and, uh, and seeing what sticks. You've really sold it to me and hopefully to everyone else listening. And if someone's listening to this and they really do want to give it a go and they've been inspired by what you've told us, what's your main advice for arriving at the JC Race Championship as a newbie? What's your words of wisdom having done it yourself? My main advice would be to um, join the, uh, the Dagua Racing Facebook page because that's where you'll find all the old hands hang around um, telling each other sad stories and taking the mick out of each other. If you were to post out there um, and say, look, I want to start racing, I need some help, um, they'll be on you, uh, absolutely among you, and, and, and you'll get all the help you need. Um, and my main advice really is just don't hang about, just do it. If, if you've got a love for motorsport, um, you're going to question your sanity at points, but you'll never regret it. It's got to be done. It's, um, it's some of the best club racing there is, I think, with the Jaguars. We're really, really lucky to have this series fantastic well get yourself an ards test get yourself a race car of course the classifieds in jaguar enthusiast magazine the magazine included with the membership of the jaguar enthusiast club uh, often carries advertisements for x race cars current race cars race cars people are building or have just built so you'll find all the information you need from the jc and you can go to the pages at jc.org.uk as well to get in touch with everyone from the racing fraternity within the club and mike thanks so much for talking to us that incredible first race you had at thruxton um just showed everyone how it can be done so uh, thanks for talking that's all for this episode of the jaguar enthusiast club podcast don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the jc podcast via www.jcpodcast.com and you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages don't forget you can also join the jaguar enthusiast club online by clicking the join today button on the top right hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits plus the fantastic glossy 130 page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.